Okay, so I'm looking at being there the third and fourth weeks of October. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll be here, definitely. Okay. No problem. No Good. problem with that at all. And then, September 2017. Uh, I'm planning a trip to England to meet Frank Carver for the first time and investigate his claims. I'm not a journalist, but I am a media professional, I guess you could say. I know how to tell stories. It's just that the stories I usually tell are about things like how great this high-end commercial blender is. So why am I now thinking about getting on a plane to investigate Frank Carver's story? I don't even know for sure that any of it is true. I think that it's a pretty bizarre thing to do. That's my wife, Mary Kay. We are very busy with kids activities and school and I work full time. Yeah, so it's it's not it's not a, a typical thing for me to leave the country for work for a couple of weeks. This is a little out of the out of the routine. Yes, this is very much out of the routine. I do travel some for work, but I get paid for that, which is not the case here. I'm spending our money and we're not wealthy. This is probably not a rational thing to do. It really would be wiser to save for the kids' college or retirement or... Ladies and gentlemen, good morning and welcome to Manchester, United Kingdom, where the local time is 7.02 a.m. We'll be taxing the 90 minutes, so please remain seated with your seatbelt. This is Square Peg. I'm Rob Collins. Part 2. Sunny Scunny. All right, I am driving into Scunthorpe. The rental car guy asked where I was going. I said Scunthorpe, and he sort of winced, like, ugh, sorry. So I don't know what to expect. Coming up on the M181. I give up on the audio diary as I struggle with the roundabouts, but it's a nice drive. Lots of sheep and wind turbines on green rolling hills. My plan is to meet Frank first, do some research, then track down other people involved in the story, especially Frank's brother, John, who allegedly stabbed out Frank's eye with a drinking glass over 50 years ago and has gotten away with it so far. I pull into Scunthorpe, a working-class town of about 80,000, and onto the street where Frank lives. I'm not quite sure which house it is, so I call Frank and he says he'll go stand outside. It's a busy street, mostly residential, but there's a nice pub restaurant on the next block and a computer repair shop across the street. I then see Frank looking for me. Hello, Frank. Bloody hell, you dizzy bugger. <laughs> I drove right by you. Frank looks to me a bit younger than his 70 years. He's a good-looking man, trim, his white hair nicely styled. His clothes look appropriately older man-ish, but pressed and neat, and almost a little bit slick in a 1980s wise guy kind of way. He wears gold-rimmed glasses, and you can't really tell that he's missing an eye. He has an ocular prosthesis, otherwise known as a glass eye, and it's pretty convincing. You have to really look to tell. We go inside. Well, this is the office. This is where we do all the... Is this Kiki? Hello. So nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. It shocked me. Kiki is Frank's companion. She's originally from Belgium, but has lived in Scunthorpe for many years. She's about Frank's age and lovely. Frank had told me previously that she's the most important person in his life. Kiki's husband died years ago, but she has a son and grandkids who live in Manchester. And I can imagine her being a wonderful grandmother. That's the sense I get. Their home feels cozy and full. The decor looks dated, as you might expect with an older person's home, but it's clean and comfortable. 
I didn't know how this would feel being here with Frank, but I'm getting a good vibe so far. We go into their home office. Frank had stacked eight or nine thick folders full of documents that he wanted me to see. M.O.D. All of it. M.O.D. All of it. The M.O.D. is the British Ministry of Defense, similar to the Department of Defense in the U.S. These documents relate to Frank's lawsuit against the M.O.D. The lawsuit is this. Frank points to his missing eye. This was done to me by a soldier. And then they're trying to say, well, he was your brother. But he was a soldier who did this to me. And he should have been punished for it, but he wasn't. Because I think, I don't, it wasn't reported. So it wasn't reported, you're saying, to local I, No, no, police. it wasn't, because the civil, the, the civil police would have not a lot to do with it, uh, because it's a military police thing. It's a, the military law and, and civilian law, uh, civil law, they're, they're different. As I mentioned earlier, I am not a journalist, and of course I am not British. In fact, this is the first time I've been to the UK. I feel like I need some help while I'm here. So I hired a couple of people, which might seem excessive considering I don't know what kind of story I'll have in the end, if any, but I guess I'm the kind of person who jumps in with both feet. I have some local help lined up, which I'll get to soon, but I also need someone who can do some research. So I'm uh, Anna Sandra. I'm a journalist uh, in London. Anna's from Romania, but has worked as an investigative reporter in the UK for about 10 years. I've tried to find as many things as I could about the one-eyed man. I hired Anna mainly to find relevant public documents, such as Frank's army records, so we could verify why he was discharged. His time in the army was not recorded in a standard mode. I've been sent back and forth by the MOD press officer to another one at the National Archives. But it seems that his file was either moved or is no longer held at the National Archives. We don't know why. So that seems curious. But whether or not the army was liable for what happened to Frank, wouldn't John have at least been disciplined for this alleged crime? I don't know. No, I've no clue. Nobody talked to me about it. I've no idea. It just, that, that wasn't in my head at the time. I mean, my head was right. the fact I've lost a blinker. I guess when you're missing an eye, you come up with nicknames. I've lost a blinker. And uh, these sort of things never crossed my mind. You know, dad'll deal with it or the army will deal with it. It was something I didn't want to be worried about at that age. I get that. Frank was just 17 years old, recovering from the surgical removal of what was left of his eye. He expected the army to deal with the incident and to take care of him. But they didn't. That, that's what the army does. That's what, that's what the army does, that's, and that's, yeah. what, um, that's a big part of the lawsuit. Yes? Well, not really. Let's, I, I, I'm, I'm lost at the minute. I'm in okay. a bit of a, take a, I'm in a, I'm in a, a mix-up here. I, I don't know where, they, where we are. I need to get these out. Okay. But I'm not too... There is a confusion here, and, and, and I can't... There's no point in talking about it until I've dug this one out. So let's just switch off a minute. And, okay. And let's get this one sorted out, because it is important, Rob. Yeah, nice. Uh, I'm not sure what this confusion is about, but we are surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands, of pages of documents. I figure this is the first time Frank has had someone poking around. That must be disconcerting. But as I continue to poke around Frank's lawsuit documents, I don't see much about his eye or being discharged from the army. 
I do see a lot about bullying. When Frank joined the army as an apprentice at the age of 15, he experienced a lot of bullying and abuse, allegedly because of his brother. My brother's in the army. He was in the same camp as me. He caused a lot of trouble there. I got the backlash. I picked up the tab for his bullying to the youngsters there. When they got to the top, I came in. Oh, so they had to go at me. And so then this abuse and bullying and, I mean, it was abuse. You were beaten. You were, yes? I was clarifying this because in Frank's book, he details some pretty horrible and violent things done to him, things which to me went far beyond bullying. Yeah, I was kicked, I was stamped on, but they, they did it in such a manner that there was very little shown on there. On the face. Yeah, that there would, that would be picked up. Pretty terrible, but I need some corroboration. I met Frank at Carlisle, he's 15 year old. Uh, we joined, joined the army and gone to an army apprentice school to become army technicians. This is Bill Bainham. He enlisted along with Frank in 1962. We had connected with Bill through an alumni group of former army apprentices, and I met him a few days later in Doncaster, a larger city about 25 miles from Scunthorpe. Bill's now a large man with a long gray beard, wearing several military buttons on his blue blazer. We met at a restaurant he suggested that was accessible to the mobility scooter he uses. Frank and Bill used to keep up with each other, but about 15 years ago, there was apparently some misunderstanding and they no longer spoke. I didn't tell Frank that I was meeting Bill. But Bill was gentle and kind when talking about his former roommate, so if there was any ill will, it didn't seem to be on Bill's end. Lou slept in the next bed to mine. Lou, I learned, was Frank. Yes, well, what, uh, basically what happened there, his father named him Francis. And he thought it was a sissy name, he didn't like it, so he wanted to be called either Frank, but everybody got nicknames, and his nickname became Lou, so everybody knew him as Lou. So you were 15 or 16 years old, and that's when you met, and you said you were... Were you right in the same class, or...? We were in the same room. In the same room? In J, in J Company, we were in the same room. What was your impression of Lou when you first met him? What kind of a young man was he? Uh, he was okay. He, uh, how could we say? He seemed a bit obsessed. With what? With the military. Uh, he, he was wanting, and as I found out later, he was trying to impress his father, because his father was all for John. So otherwise, besides being obsessed with succeeding in the military, he seemed just a normal type person? Yeah, uh, as normal as you can be. We were all, we were all slightly, uh, how could we say, you have to have a certain mindset to go into the military. Because you know when you sign on, uh, you're signing a blank check. I asked Bill about Frank being abused and bullied. Lou slept in the next bed to mine. To be, I don't know, um, 11, 12 o'clock on a night. Suddenly you could hear people talking. The doors opened and someone said, it's there. The next thing, Lou's bed goes up in the air. And uh, they're starting to lash, lash into him. 
Bill remembered that older apprentices stormed into their room late at night, found Frank's bed, and threw it up in the air. He said it was like when your bed was being inspected in the morning by the corporal. If your bed wasn't made properly... They'd up your bed and... But they did it with... with but they did it with him in. And so that surprised you when that happened? Uh, it was a bit frightening. So Lou was taken down to the guard room, spent the night in protective custody. I asked Bill if he knew why this happened. Oh, they, they said, oh, this is Carver's brother here. So these people who were these men, boys, what would you call them, young men? Yeah. Were victims of Johnny Carver. Bill acknowledged that bullying was common, but said this seemed different, worse. Seems that Johnny Carver took it to an extreme. He took it to an extreme against his subordinates. Yeah. And then those subordinates, when you and Frank got to the camp, those subordinates, Johnny's subordinates became your superiors. Yes. And so they gave Frank, or Lou, uh, additional, what would you, how would you describe? Abuse? What, What words would you use to say? What they wanted to do was really hurt him. They wanted to give him a good beating. So to be clear, Bill did not witness John behaving badly. Bill had never met John. But he did see older apprentices abusing Frank because Frank was John's brother, as retribution. I'm relieved that Bill is corroborating part of Frank's story, because the thought had definitely crossed my mind that I should have done some more fact-checking before I headed off on this self-funded investigative extravaganza of old British men and military lawsuits. And remember, Bill and Frank are no longer friends, and Frank doesn't even know I'm here, so Bill has no reason I can think of not to tell the truth. So now, after speaking with Bill Bainham and hearing about this vicious brother of Frank's, I'm relieved that at least some of it is true. And then as soon as I let that sink in, I remember that I'm going to have to try to confront this violent bully. Sure, he's now 74 years old, but still, it makes me feel a little uneasy. Anyway, I'm not quite finished talking to Bill Bainham. I ask him if he knew anything about what happened with Frank's eye, and his answer surprises me. That's after the break. I'm interviewing Bill Bainham, who served in the Army with Frank when they were teenagers in the early 1960s. Bill confirmed Frank's account of being abused as retribution for John's extreme bullying. That happened before the incident that left Frank missing an eye, so I asked Bill what he knew about that. He didn't know firsthand, of course, and qualified that this was hearsay, but... I was told that he was acting up, and Johnny had got a drum buick glass, he went to throw it but his hand went too far on the glass, and the drum buoy glass breaks very easily. It does. It's a, is it a light oh, glass? Yes, very light. Okay. This is the first time I've heard anyone besides Frank talk about what happened on that fateful night of New Year's Eve, 1964, and it's very different from the story Frank had told me. So let's go back and hear the full story of the most important night of Frank Carver's life. Here's Frank's version, as he told me initially over Skype. John had been away. He was down south of the country, and he, he got he got leave for that Christmas. And we were in the pub, 
having a drink one lunchtime, I'm sure, yeah. And in he came with his wife. And it was in between the days in between Christmas and New Year. New Year's Eve. And I'd had a couple of drinks over the limit. And this big six foot odd guy walks in. And as he pushed his tray on the bar, he didn't say, excuse me, you knocked my drink over. And I thought, well, you're going to say something, I'm sure. He never apologised. And I just watched the gin and tonic roll off the off the edge of the bar onto my shoes. And I thought, you son of a bitch. So I just looked up at him. I said, aren't you going to apologise? And he never answered me. So anyway, to cut a long story short, I took a swing at him to wake him up. And uh, I missed, too. I missed my target. I spun around like a spinning top. Now I, I fell onto the floor. They just laughed their heads off. And it was a joke. Frank remembered that people in the club were laughing at him as he was sprawled on the floor after whiffing on a wild right hook. But one person wasn't laughing. My brother John was in there, and uh, they saw what was going on. And he come, and he got my suit jacket, ripped it up over my head, pinned me to the ground, give me a good beating and then he dragged me outside through the club and just uh, left me there and said don't you dare come back in there boy because you'll you'll be standing up again and that was it then when I went home and I staggered home I got home and I staggered home I wasn't that drunk I I got home that was it and I just sort of I had a lot of milk I remember that and I'd sobered up reasonably well I was I was okay Frank remembered that he sobered up and phoned Derek, the bartender and owner of the club, to apologize for the scene. Derek said, no harm done, come back in tomorrow for a drink. Frank thought all was well. And then I'm in the back room. John walked in, stood in front of the fire with his hands warming himself because it was cold outside. And his wife had sat down in a chair at the side of the fire. And then he started on me disgracing my uniform. I said, I didn't have a uniform on. You know, he started picking on me and and he just wouldn't lay off. And I ended up saying to him, I said, if it hadn't been for that cow, uh, as a polite remark, referring to her. The her in question was John's wife. Frank had just politely called his sister-in-law a cow. He was was holding a glass of Drambuie. It's a liqueur. And... uh, and the glass straight into the face and he actually used it like a dagger and he lunged it at me and it's a very robust these drambuie glasses very very robust they weren't thin they were quite thick and and when that was shoved at me the glass broke on the cheekbone and then because it broke it sliced my eye into so that's frank's story yet bill heard at the time I was told that he was acting up and Johnny had got a Drambuie glass, he went to throw it but his hand went too far and the glass and the Drambuie glass breaks very easily. So Bill basically heard that it was an accident. Frank was acting up, which seemed about right between his antics at the club and then the argument with his brother. So John goes to toss his drink in Frank's face but it goes too far and the glass somehow breaks inadvertently. How did that version of the story get back to Bill? I'd have to wait a bit for the answer to that question. First, I had to pick up someone from the train station. Right side. 
it's weird that we drive on the left because most European cities drive on the, the right. It's just England that have decided to be different. So we're going to turn. That was a curve. Sorry about that. It's all right. I'm going to stop talking. Yeah. You stop. Okay, you just focus on the roundabout. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, I wanted to hire someone to help me here in Scunthorpe. So a month or so ago, I posted on the job board of the University of York, which is about an hour north of Scunthorpe. I called the position associate producer and ended up hiring two people. One is Marie, and I'm scheduled to meet with her in a couple of days, but I'm now connecting with Beth Faraday, a recent philosophy graduate who had worked at the university's newspaper and radio. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I guess I'm your England counterpart to help explain to you all those sort of English colloquialisms that might uh, that might escape you and uh, to help as well with this unfolding story as it, as it happens. So I'm driving Beth around Scunthorpe, or Sunny Scunny as the locals call it. This is Beth's first visit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very different to York, but it, it's not dissimilar to, to most of the towns in this area. You kind of have the long rows of red brick terraced houses. This part of town is called Ashby. It's where Frank lives too, sort of a small town within a small city. And I'm really enjoying it so far. I don't know what was up with that rental car guy in Manchester, but I like Scunthorpe. It's a working-class town, industrial, but friendly and almost quaint. We drive by Carver's Fish and Chips. So this is the fish and chip shop that his parents, the Carvers, used to, used to own. Yes, Frank was born upstairs. Wow. So you can see it right here. Carver's. Oh, yeah, there is Carver's Fish the Restaurant. You can go to the back and see where he would have jumped off the roof when he was... Oh, yeah. It's funny, but Frank's already turned into a minor celebrity or thereabouts in my eyes and seemingly in Beth's as well. And Beth hasn't even met him yet. I mean, I don't think anyone would get that excited about going by my childhood home. And yet there we were, ooing and eyeing on the Frank Carver celebrity house tour. We're actually on the way to see Frank. Beth has heard some of my Skype calls. And when we stop for coffee, I ask her if she believes Frank's story. You never want to say you don't believe someone, you think someone's lying, because that seems like a harsh, a harsh thing to say of someone. Perhaps when he retells the story, you think maybe elements could be exaggerated, just because this story seems, I mean, if it is true, is really awful, you know, if he's experienced this systematic bullying whilst in the army, and then he gets injured by, yes, his brother, but another soldier, and, you know, the army wants to tell him that they're... You know, he's kind of not covered under military law and, as you said, kind of sling him out, you know, in the rain on his own. I mean, if that, if that all is true, it, it seems like a, a pretty awful thing to happen to someone. What do you think, then? <laughs> You've met me. An ogre. <laughs> You're not an ogre. That's unfair. <laughs> we arrive at Frank and Kiki's house and get off to an odd start as Frank tells Beth about some medical procedures he's had before. That, if you look at my stomach, there's a, that's where the stoma bag was yeah. and the feed bag. They were next to each other and they had to now cut. We were talking about Frank's current struggles with his health. This was later when Beth and I debriefed. He's been in and out of hospital and he's had invasive operations. And then to prove his point, he then lifted his shirt um, up up to his collarbone, in fact, and then proceeded to point out to me all the various incisions he'd had during his operations. And I think he just wanted to show off his tan. He's rather tan. He was, yeah, he was tan. He was slim as well for 
a guy of his age. It's such a mess mm. of the the intestines that they were all not. I think in my head he was a larger figure. I'm not sure why, but he's a slight figure. He is very clean. He's very well kept. He didn't smell much like garlic today. Did you notice a garlic smell? A very faint garlic smell. But I think I only picked up on that because you told me beforehand that he does like to eat garlic. Frank had told me before that his secret to good health was drinking Guinness and eating raw garlic. After a while, I could oh, there was an unusual smell. You'd said the garlic and it kind of, I put the two together and I was like, hmm. <laughs> a few minutes later, Kiki comes in. She'd been out for a walk. Shoes off. Did you did you enjoy your walk? Yes, thank you. All right, you can tell us about it when you come in. Yeah, I'm just making my shoes off. Can I ask Kiki a question? Would, Sorry? Can I ask you a question on this? What well, depends what it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just I was curious what Kiki knew about all of this family drama. When did you become aware of kind of Frank's family story and what happened to his eye and Oh you he, he gave me a book. But did it strike you as an unusual story? Well, yeah, it's a little bit uh, awkward, I think. Yeah, and then with his family in town and John and... I've never, the, never seen them. Just to have the, mm. the family who you haven't seen live nearby, it just seems very yeah. strange to me. But I, d- I don't know, I don't know them, so I, right. I couldn't see. Maybe I, I walk into town, they were in front of me. I haven't got a clue, I don't know what they look like. Right. She was a very lovely lady, very welcoming into her home, very hospitable. When it came to Frank and his stories, I think she at times kind of indulged him. But she seemed fond of him. Very fond, yeah. They seemed like a nice pair. And I did like Frank, actually. I thought I was ready to kind of spend a, spend a day with a guy I wasn't going to like. But I liked Frank. I thought, you know, he was funny and he was joking with us. Earlier in the day, Frank had performed a sort of magic trick for Beth. He showed her a Tupperware-type container with a white object inside. What does that say? There is no such word as can't. When there's a will, there's a way. Yes, you can fit a square peg into a round hole. Can you? I don't don't know about that. Well, you've you've heard about it, haven't you? You've heard the saying. (laughs) You can't. Well, that's square, that's a triangle, and that's that's a round hole. Frank had taken a piece of styrofoam and carved three holes, one square, one round, and one a triangle, and he attached a handwritten inscription that Beth just read. He had also fashioned a square peg. And I'm going to outfit that through there and through there, and it'll touch all the surface, the sides. Do do you think that's possible, Beth? I mean... There's nothing... No, it seems it seems impossible to fit yeah, a round peg say in to a well, square see, hole. So you see, if you take that out of there and push it in there, like that, it touches. All he the fits sides. the square peg into the square you hole, but then somehow makes it also yeah. fit perfectly into the round hole and the triangle. It fits all the sides. Oh yeah, it's clever. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Frank's rather proud of this contraption, so I won't spoil the trick, but just remember his inscription. There is no such word as can't. When there's a will, there's a way. Yes, you can fit a square peg into a round hole. Frank Carver believed that anything was possible if you just kept pushing. And I was really starting to believe him. 
I had my doubts initially, but I'm feeling like maybe this is going to happen. Maybe after all these years of seeking justice as the victim of an awful crime, we were finally about to get there. Now I just need to track down Frank's favorite person, his older brother, John. Oh boy. Square Peg is a Lucid 48 production. It was written and produced by Ashley Hall and me. Visit our website, squarepegpodcast.com, to learn more.